1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. We're here today with Professor Carol Harrison uh, of the University of South Carolina uh, to talk about her new book, uh, Romantic Catholics, Francis Post-Revolutionary Generation in Search of a Modern Faith, which was published by Cornell University Press last year. Welcome to New Books in Christian Studies, Professor Harrison.
0: Thank you very much.
1: I wonder if we could start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself, where you were born, how you came to be interested in romantic Catholics, who your mentors were. Can you say a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well,
0: I I am originally from Louisiana, and uh, that has everything to do with my having become a French historian. I learned French as a child in Louisiana. Uh, I'm not from uh, a Cajun French-speaking family, but... uh, Uh, When I was in school in Louisiana, there was a lot of effort to save, revive French in the state, and I benefited from that uh, with great teachers and and learning the language when I was still quite small. And so I spent many years in Louisiana speaking French and, and, and fascinated by France and desperate to go to France and actually see it. Uh, I went to LSU in Baton Rouge as an undergraduate, took a degree in French as well as in history, and, um, and then went on to graduate school uh, in Oxford in the UK. Uh, I think in some ways Louisiana was also the beginning of my interest in Romantic Catholics because uh, although I wasn't raised Catholic, I grew up in a very Catholic world, a uh, very French-speaking Catholic world uh, that is South Louisiana. Okay. And how did you
1: come to be interested in Romantic Catholics in particular?
0: Well, this is my second book. And uh, my first book was about uh, male voluntary associations in the 19th century. And it was about the creation of a, of a French provincial middle class uh, centered around uh, male identity and voluntary association. And one of the things that interested me as I wrote that book was to find just how important religious affiliation was in the world of these um, Of these voluntary associations, because much of what I read about the formation of the bourgeoisie in France suggested that they were supposed to be Voltairian, that they were supposed to be dedicated to secularism. And what I found as I looked at many of these associations was that the one thing that was most likely to get you blackballed uh, was religious difference. And I was working mostly in Eastern France. I was working in areas that had, um, Slightly unusual religious compositions, so Mulhouse, where the elite is Protestant, uh, Besançon where there 's a significant Protestant community um, there 's also an important Alsatian Jewish community, and so I was interested in the fact that that religious religious affiliation still mattered tremendously, so I thought I would follow up on that for a second book, and that's that 's the beginning of Romantic Catholics. Uh, my original idea for the book borrowed very heavily from from the first book, which is called The Bourgeois Citizen in 19th Century France, and that I was interested in institutions. Uh, And really the bridge from first project to second was the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, this group of young male Catholics founded in the 19th century. And so my original interest in in Catholics was largely in institutions like the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. And I imagined writing a book about Catholic institutions, charitable societies, uh, schools, Catholic schools, um, the Zouave who defended the Pope. And what happened as I was working on Romantic Catholics is that I ran into these sources by these, these particular Catholic men and women of the period that were so profoundly intimate, uh, and, and so ref- self-reflective in which people really described their struggles and their, their, their beliefs and their relationships with other people, uh, that um, about halfway through writing the manuscript, uh, I decided it wasn't really about institutions anymore, that it was going to be about people.
1: Mm-hmm. So you took a more biographic approach.
0: Yes, so the book is about a group of these romantic Catholics. They're all people born um, born during the Restoration, born too late for the Revolution, too late re- too late for the Napoleonic Empire, to, 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 to born to parents who, of course, had had made the Revolution on both sides. And um, who have to face the 19th century, uh, having in some ways missed the, you know, the world historical moment of the era, they missed the revolution. there, a bit like Stendhal-Julien Sorel. Um, and this group of people believed that Catholicism, so badly damaged by the revolution, could in fact be revived, could be modernized, could be a way to respond to the post-revolutionary world in sort of active, dynamic, forward-looking ways rather than the uh, sort of um, backward-looking, nostalgic efforts to recapture the alliance of the throne and altar that so many Restoration Catholics were pursuing.
1: So they represented a sort of middle way between the liberals and the conservatives. That's your argument, I think, in the book. Can you yes. us a little bit more about that? their socio-political yes. position as you see it? Yes, well, I th- these are people who are commonly in the scholarship
0: referred to as liberal Catholics, and I, I very deliberately chose not to call them liberal because uh, as a group, they really come together in the late 20s and, and 1830s around uh, the teachings of Félicité de l'Amné. And... Minnesianism is anti-liberal. It's it's deeply anti-liberal. Uh, for most of these young Catholic, liberalism uh, in its elevation of the individual, right, the rights-bearing individual is the most important member of the political community. This was the basic problem with the revolution. They insist not so much, not just that it attacked the church, but the root of that attack on the church is the is is liberalism, is the belief that individuals matter more than communities, than ties between individuals, like. Friendship, like marriage, uh, like sac- other sacramental ties, so calling them romantic uh, rather than liberal is an effort to capture this early nineteenth-century rejection of liberalism and their investment in uh, in romanticism, in the problem of understanding the individual and the individual's relationship to society, and their desire to privilege, in many ways, society over the individual.
1: Mm-hmm. And you say that the romanticism also inheres in the trust they place in the emotions. Can you tell us a little bit about their emotionality? Because it seems to be very linked both to their political outlook and also to their Catholic devotionalism. Yes,
0: these are these are certainly all people who... Um, well, certainly the sources I use are, are very intimate sources. They're, they're what you might call ego documents. And, uh, the, the emotions really do sort of leap off the page. These are people who spent a lot of time thinking about themselves and their feelings and their relationships to the people they loved. And, uh, love in many different forms, uh, is, is important to them as a way to reconstruct society after the revolution, to create a society that's not just a bunch of individuals who sort of pass through the world in isolation, but rather a society that's people tied together, um, through various kinds of love, whether that's friendship or marriage. Um, or parental love for children. So the sources are they're, they're, they're very much about people considering their own emotions, thinking about them, deliberately shaping them, uh, trying to, to to create the kinds of bonds with others that, that they feel will produce a coherent and, and um, a society that holds together.:
1: mm-hmm. And where do you think devotion comes in because you've talked quite a lot about, for instance, the devotion that Amelie Bazanam had towards her husband and how self-effacing she was. And that also comes back at the end of the book when you're discussing um, the devotional figures of the end of the 19th century. Can you talk a little bit about um, especially womanhood and devotion? Because that seems to be a running theme through your book,
0: well, writing about Catholic women and especially Catholic lay women was an important priority for me in this book because historiographically one of the points I wanted to make, uh, was that the arguments Historians commonly use about the feminization of Catholicism and really even more broadly, the feminization of religion, uh, that these are that these in the 19th century, these were polemical arguments, right? These will, are, were arguments intended to limit women's rights uh, rather than simply sort of neutral sociological descriptions of who you would find in the pews of Catholic churches. I mean, certainly there is a phenomenon of, of women outnumbering men in congregations in religious vocations. But first of all, it's, it's important, obviously, to note that many, many Catholic, many, many men remained devout Catholics. And, uh, that the church would, that feminization is, is a, it's, it's a polemical position. It's, it's about depriving women of rights. Um, and so I wanted to think about, uh, female Catholics and what women found in the Catholic Church in the 19th century. And so writing about both men and women, about the relationships between them is important. So the book uh, focuses, as you say, on one Catholic marriage between Frédéric and Amélie Ozanam. Uh, Frédéric was the founder of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, which is still today one of the largest Catholic charitable societies in the world. Um, and it focuses on friendship as well between men and women. Uh, Charles de Montalembert uh, who was probably the best known of the Romantic Catholic generation, had a lifelong friendship with Pauline Craven, uh, who was, her maiden name is Pauline Laferonnet, uh, one of the best-selling writers of 19th century France, wrote um, a, a best-selling memoir about growing up with her sisters. And their friendship, their lifelong friendship is important. They're also brother-sister relationships, um, in the book, so thinking about Catholic women and what they found in the church was very important. And one of the things that I that I find very interesting and that I'd like to pursue further, I think, is that in many ways it seems to me that what the Catholic Church offered women. Um, well, the assumption in women's history is often that women are slower to move towards a secular view of a rights-based society, right? That the feminization of religion means that it sort of takes women longer to understand that in the modern world, appropriate arguments are secular and rights-based. It seems to me that in 19th century France, women who embraced Catholicism um, – The church was certainly not offering them equality. It wasn't offering them equal rights, but then it wasn't pretending to either. And the French state was, of course, not offering them equality either. It was not offering them full citizenship. So I think it's worth considering at greater length, uh, why women embraced Catholicism and to think about the fact that they, they got a lot out of it, that there were, there were real rewards in it for them that, that secular citizenship was not offering. Mm
1: I wonder if we could go through your book, um, you know, chapter by chapter briefly, because you sure. present, and certainly, as you say, you know, quite well-known figures like Montalembert, but also very ill-known ones, um, like the daughter of Victor Hugo herself, with whom you opened the book. Um, can you tell us a little bit, for instance, about her and her First Communion, um, which is the subject of your first chapter? and. How that helps to open a window onto the world of Romantic Catholicism.
0: Sure. Well, I tried to structure the book um, to follow both a Catholic life course as well as the chronology of the 19th century. So the first two chapters are about childhood. And they're set, uh, in the Restoration and Early July Monarchy in the, in the 20s and 30s. And, uh, the next two chapters are about Catholic adulthood, uh, and they're at mid-century. And then the final two chapters are about, uh, adulthood, but also Catholics thinking more clearly about obligations beyond the family. They're about Catholic responses to the social question and to the Roman question. Uh, moving towards 1870. But the two first chapters on childhood, um, the first one is about, as you said, the sacrament of communion. And the key figure there is Leopoldine Hugo, uh, Victor Hugo's daughter. Um, I stumbled on her almost entirely by accident. I had been reading a lot of children's first communion stories, and I was in Paris working in the archives and I was diligently working away and and, and in fact my husband went to the Musée Victor Hugo for fun and came back and said, Carol, you have to go. There's a whole exhibit about Leopoldine Hugo and her first communion. Um so it was it was um almost accidental that I stumbled on her, but her first communion is extraordinarily well-documented. And uh, I find several things interesting about her. First, that she comes out of this um, not terribly devout family, uh, but even though the Ugo are not particularly devout, um, No one ever questions that Léopoldine should make her first communion. Of course she should make her first communion. Communion was extraordinarily common. It was a universal experience of childhood through the 19th century. People who would not go on to marry in the church would almost certainly have been, have received communion as children. The other thing that I found interesting about Leopoldine's communion is how closely it echoed other accounts of communion, and in particular, uh, the best-selling girls novel of the 19th century, which is Victorine Meunier's book, uh, Le Journal de Marguerite. And Le uh, Journal de Marguerite was such a bestseller because it was a very common gift for girls who were going through First Communion. The book is structured like a journal. Marguerite writes in her journal in the year before she receives her communion. So it's a girl growing up and coming to a sort of realization of her place in the world as she prepares to receive the sacrament. And both Leopoldine's story and the Journal de Marguerite very closely link communion with early death for little girls. The idea that communion might be the beginning of a glorious adulthood uh, where women, where girls grow up to women and they go on to, to raise children and be good wives and mothers. But the other possibility is that they die young um, and that they die very saintly deaths. Because a death right after First Communion is in many ways something that that you should wish for in these stories, because a girl is at her purest right after she's received the Eucharist for the first time. So there's a tension there's a tension in these stories that on the one hand you want girls to grow up and have adventurous lives as Marguerite does in the book. She she travels around the whole world. It's a very exciting book. Um, but there's always the possibility, as happens to Marguerite's best friend, and as happens to Leopoldine, who dies shortly after her communion, of
1: an early death, of a saintly early death. And in a way, that's what um, Victorine's heroine, Marguerite, ends up doing. She dies to the world because she becomes a nun. You explain that in the epilogue. Yes, the end of the book comes
0: back to Marguerite, the best selling, not this, the heroine of this best selling girl's novel. Uh, Victorine Meunier wrote a sequel to the Journal de Marguerite, and she wrote this sequel uh, after. it became clear that Papal Rome was probably going to fall. That the French state was not going to support Pius IX in in holding on to Rome indefinitely. And Victorie Meunier was outraged by this. And in her sequel, Marguerite who had, as a child, had this adventurous life in which she does, she travels around the world, she faces all kinds of dangers, she sees exotic places, and it's all very exciting. In the sequel, her life just contracts, and she winds up entering a religious order Putting her journal aside, announcing that she doesn't have to write anymore because now she communicates directly with God and more or less she turns her back on her readers. The sequel never sold very well. Um, but the sequel, I, I, I choose to end the book with the sequel because uh, in many ways I think the Marguerite as a nun is, is the kind of caricatured Catholic woman of the Third Republic, right? The, the, the Catholic woman who couldn't be trusted with the vote, the Catholic woman who will destroy the Republic, who will hand it over to her priests. Uh, the the young Marguerite, excited about being both a devout Catholic and a participant in the world, uh, that's a figure from an earlier period, and she disappears under the Third Republic.
1: Mm-hmm. And also, the her death to the world, you know, as as she enters the Commons, is I think symbolically apt, given that you've structured your book to mirror the human lifespan.
0: Yes, that the book ends with um, this devout Catholic woman leaving the world, dying to the world, entering the convent, putting away her pen, deciding she doesn't have to write anymore because most of the women, in fact, many, many of the men and women in the book are writers.
1: Mm-hmm. Tell us about Maurice de Guérin, who is the subject of your second chapter, the second childhood chapter and his education. Well, Maurice is also
0: a writer. Uh, Maurice de Guérin is a, um, a minor romantic poet. Uh, the chapter on Maurice is one of those that began as a chapter about an institution. I was interested in the Collège Stanislas in Paris, which is one of the, it's still there. It's, uh, it's doing very well as a Catholic, uh, Catholic school in Paris today. And, um, when I realized, I realized that this was a book that I wanted to be about people and not about institutions, I chose to focus on, on Maurice. And, um, he, I think, is an interesting figure because he is clearly – he's the son of uh, sort of a stereotypical restoration Catholic, right? His father is, a, is an aristocrat, a dyed-in-the-wool legitimist, uh, never gets over the revolution, never stops being bitter. Uh, Maurice is the second son. He's destined to become a priest. I was fascinated to learn that Maurice begins wearing a cassock at age 11, in his preparation for the priesthood. The family makes some significant sacrifices to send Maurice to Paris, they're from the south. Uh, but this is going to be his path, not just to any clerical career, but to a to a to a to a successful sort of clerical career that works its way up the ladder. But in Paris, Maurice loses his vocation. He loses his vocation as a teenager and he finds a new vocation, which is that he wants to be a poet. And so it's a story about boys growing up. Uh, And while Maurice does lose the priestly vocation, he does not break with Catholicism. He breaks with his father's version of Catholicism, but instead he discovers Lamne, and he discovers the circle of young men around Felicité de Lamne. Lamne creates at his home in Brittany a sort of a cross between a Catholic think tank and a monastery, where a group of young men go to live together in, in Christian fraternity, and Maurice joins them. Um, so it's it's about this uh, effort at the end of the twenties and the beginning of the thirties of young men, the beginnings of of young men trying to find this different Catholic path. To, to a modern post-revolutionary future, a future that doesn't try to rec- recreate the world from before the revolution. It's not trying to go back to the old regime, but it's trying to find a way for uh, Catholicism and the new regime to, to, to live together.
1: Right. And another Venetian is the subject of your next chapter, jean uh, de Montalembert. Um, can you tell us about your approach to him?
0: Well, the book in its current form really started with this chapter on Montalembert. Um, and it's the first of the two about Catholic adulthoods, growing up and, and reaching adulthood. Uh, like Maurice de Guérin, Montalembert discovered, uh, Lamne, And Montalembert was also a son of a legitimist aristocrat. Montalembert was in fact born in, in England in the immigration and, uh, as a, a, in his late teens, early twenties, felt stifled by his family's legitimism, was interested in, in, you know, something that wasn't quite so backward looking. He didn't feel like he could possibly make a life dedicated to trying to recreate the world of his father. And he discovers Lamnay at that time. And he also discovers another follow, follower of Lamnay who becomes his closest friend. And that's Henri Lacordaire who uh, Lacordaire was also a young man studying to be a lawyer, has a conversion experience. And ultimately, um, it was Lacordaire who reestablishes the Dominican order in France. Lacordaire fi- finds a priestly vocation and takes orders. And so this chapter is about the relationship between Lacordaire and Montalembert with uh, Lamné as a third figure. And it's built particularly around the condemnation of Lamney's ideas by the papacy in 1832 and then 1834. And the dilemma of the chapter is what a young man like Montalembert, What what can he do when he has pledged both to be an obedient Catholic, to find his future as an obedient Catholic who believes deeply that it's possible for young men of the post-revolutionary world to be citizens, to be good, autonomous citizens and obedient, devout Catholics? What does he do when the Pope condemns... Lamnay's ideas, right? How does he find, does he give up the church? Does he give up autonomy? Uh, how does he find his way to reconciling those two things at the crisis point? And Montalembert worked his way through this problem largely via this romantic friendship with La Calder. And in many ways, it's the, the correspondence between the two. They had an, an, an extraordinarily frank and loving correspondence. Uh, And it was the correspondence between the two of them when I wrote this chapter that I thought the rest of this book cannot possibly be about institutions, not not and go with this chapter about two young men pouring their souls out to each other (laughs) um, and trying to sort of make their friendship the center of their lives.
1: Mm -hmm. And Lamounet is you don't talk very much about Lamounet in the book, even though, in a sense, he's the origin of the whole Romantic Catholic movement. Do you want to take the opportunity to say a little bit about him now and how he shapes this ethos that you're describing and and putting forward?
0: Yes, I I made um, a decision to write about late Catholics, but you're right. Lamne is uh, is behind all of them, and I would say that Lamne is probably – if I had to make a list of really important figures in French history, at least in, in, in modern French history, who who have not been adequately written about, I think I'd put Lamnay at the top of the list. And it's really a pity, uh, especially because uh, Lamnay's own letters and writings are so easily accessible. Uh, the late Louis Le Guillou in France absolutely dedicated his life to editing Lamnay's correspondence, the correspondence of people around Lamnay, like Montalembert. And so there's an amazing amount of material about Lamnay. Uh, so if anyone's looking for projects, I think I think Lamnay is, is an excellent, excellent project. Uh, because he did uh, – his ideas are fascinating – uh, on the, he, on the one hand, he inspires these young people, uh, to try to create this modern, expansive Catholicism. Uh, on the other hand, in some ways, he's quite, he's older than they are. He is, in some ways, a person of the old regime. Uh, he is, um, and he makes an interesting transition himself from being quite the ultramontane for absolutely in the 20s, insisting that French Catholics should stop trying to make this, recreate this throne altar alliance of the 18th century. Uh, And they should look to Rome instead, that Rome is much safer than Paris, uh, or at least than the the French throne. Uh, But then he breaks with the Pope. And by 1848, he's, he's a hero of the left, Sitting in the in the in the assembly in 1848, uh, so I think he's a fascinating figure, and yes, he is in many ways the point of inspiration for the lay Catholics I write about.
1: Mm-hmm. And La himself
0: was a priest, wasn't he? Yes, yes. La begins life like many of the young men I'm interested in. He's he's the son of a, a Napoleonic uh, doctor, and um, he. Uh, he, he's going to be a lawyer, he, he studies law, he has a sort of crisis moment in his life when he rediscovers Christianity and, um, and finds a vocation and goes to seminary. Uh, so he's – yes, he's – he's there, there are a series of priests who are close friends with many of the lay Catholics at the center of my book, but I did make a deliberate decision to talk about the laity because one of the things I think is important about these Romantic Catholics is their insistence that lay people bring a lot to the church and that lay people in particular bring something important to the church's effort to come to terms with the post-revolutionary world, that people whose vocation is to marriage and parenthood – uh, that that their voices need to be heard in the church, and this is something that that lots of uh, churchmen in the nineteenth century find very difficult to to swallow.
1: Mm-hmm. But in a way, not Lamuné himself, because it's his worldliness that some argue, you know, leads him to his political turnaround. Um, I wonder, though, if you could tell us a little bit about Pauline Craven. Um, who I think your book is really the first. Uh, encounter I've had with her. Um, so she seems to be relatively ill-known, and I wondered if you could tell us about her.
0: Yes, Pauline Craven is fascinating. Um, she was, uh, like Victorine Mongeau, one of the great best-selling authors of the 19th century. Uh, her book, Le Récit d'une Sœur, which is an account of growing up with her sisters, uh, in the 1830s and 40s was an enormous bestseller. Pretty much any young woman who grew up in France before the First World War read Le Récit d'une Sœur. And she is, as you say, largely unknown. Um, but she's a completely fascinating figure. Uh, she, she, like Charles de Montalembert, was born in London. She was born in the immigration. Her father was an émigré. He returns uh, and joins the diplomatic corps. The, the Comte de la Féronée joins the diplomatic corps of the Bourbon Restoration and And refuses to return to France after the July monarchy. So so Pauline and her sisters uh, spend their late 20s in Naples, in Italy, uh, because their father won't go back to France. And um, her memoir of of growing up with her sisters is fascinating, because on the one hand, it's about this cosmopolitan, aristocratic world of balls and courtships and... and, But on the other hand, it's also about suffering and early death and about the the confidence that families will be reunited, uh, that Christian families will be reunited after death. And readers uh, responded to this tremendously. And the chapter on Pauline Craven really came together when I found the several hundred letters that readers had written to Craven about her book. Uh, telling her stories about their own widowhood, about the loss of beloved family members, uh, about the ways in which they used her book devotionally to come to terms with with grief uh, in adulthood.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and then you also talk about another pair of Indonesians, uh, the Yosanans.
0: The Ozanam, yes, sir. As I said, the book really, the the idea for the book started with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. And so my idea was to write about the society, and I became interested in Ozanam that way. And Ozanam in many ways starts in a world very similar to to Maurice de Guérin, to Charles de Montalembert, very male-oriented student sociability. And that's what the Society of St. Vincent de Paul is originally. It's young men uh, who are going to gather together to practice charity in order to in order to perfect their own souls, in order to bring their own souls closer to God. Uh, what transformed that chapter was discovering that although all of the letters of Frederick Ozanam have been published, there's a beautiful edition of the complete letters of Ozanam, um, uh, Amelise, his wife's correspondence Uh, at the time was still in family hands. And a descendant, uh, the late Raphael Chevalier Montariol made them available to me in her living room. Uh, they're now at the, they're now at the Bibliothèque Nationale. But reading the other half of the correspondence, reading Amélie's part of the correspondence, uh, was fascinating. And so it shifted that chapter so that it was no longer another chapter about the world of young men who, who, who pursue this kind of fraternal sociability, but rather it was about marriage and about the centrality of marriage in thinking in Ozanam's thought about social Catholicism. So that social Catholicism ultimately comes to see marriage as the central uh, sacrament as the model for society, and women as uh, the models of, of how to be saved, really, of seeking salvation.
1: Do you think that has something to do with Ozanam's reaction to the condemnation of Lamennais? Because until Lamennais was condemned, it seems that these romantic Catholics really gathered around the ideal of the Catholic citizen, it was a political ideal. But after he gets condemned, you hint in several places in the book that their orientation has to shift from a political perspective to a more social and perhaps more intimate perspective. Do you think that that's how Ozanam, that was Ozanam's way of dealing with the condemnation of Lamine?
0: That's very important, certainly. And for Ozanam also, the, the condemnation, like, like the other characters, he's he's, he's very much a Manetian. He's very inspired by Lamne's vision of a Catholic future. And the condemnation really hurts him. He finds it very difficult to come to terms with. But what he also finds difficult is the polemic around the condemnation. So Montalembert suffers at having to uh, at, at having to uh, announce his own obedience to the Pope, right? That For Montanembe, that's what's difficult. For Ozanam, what's difficult is finding people arguing about these ideas and, and about himself. I mean, that Ozanam himself is targeted in the press. And, and he finds this very disturbing. And the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, the retreat to the social, as you suggest, yes, is, is about Ozanam, Ozanam declaring that we need to back off of the political and that it's time to look for Catholic young men to look into their own souls, to look to, to their less fortunate brethren, and that that's the appropriate move for really creating this Catholic society of, of individuals who are in communion with one another, and that it needs to be less polemical and less, less political.
1: Mm-hmm. So basically, the idea is you work at creating a good society individual by individual, as opposed to, you know creating certain political circumstances. And that ties in with the theme of feminization that comes back at the end of your book. Um, I have the impression that for you, feminization, that you see feminization in this period as a sort of acknowledgement of the church of its own defeat in the public sphere. Um, And Republicans also view feminization as a symbol of the church's defeat. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that and how... You know, this retreat from the public sphere of the church that your book seems to evoke is associated with the feminization of Catholicism, and at the same time, the weakening of Catholicism. And what does that mean for women as well?
0: Well, I'm not sure I would say the Catholic Church retreats from the public sphere, but I do think that the church adopts a language of victimization um, so that particularly after 1870 and 1870 of course is the the beginning of the third Republic, but it's also crucially the fall of Rome. Um, And I I think it's hard to underestimate how the fall of Rome uh, moves Catholics across Europe. And as I said, I wouldn't say the church retreats, but they, they assume this position of victimization. Of course it starts at the top, right? This is Pius the ninth prisoner of the Vatican. Um, And, the language of feminization works very well as a language of victimization, right? The church is like a woman always ready to be victimized, always ready to be, to be beaten, to be attacked and always patiently suffering. So that the language of a feminized church is something that Catholics adopt. And of course it's also, as we well know, something Republicans adopt, right? That the church, uh, that women are basically, uh atavistic Catholics that if you allow them the vote they'll sell the Republic out to their priests, they'll do what their confessor tells them to. So that the Catholic woman of the Third Republic, who I think is, is as I suggested, as much a mythical figure as a real one, uh is is a character created on both sides. Um, it's, It's a character that occupies the space that in the early 19th century was full of these romantic Catholics who were creative and expansive. By the end of the 19th century, what you have is this landscape that's been kind of flattened out. And what's left is this rather caricatured Catholic woman.
1: And one of them is Marguerite, as you mentioned in the epilogue, and another one is the Empress. Can you tell us about Eugénie de Montijo?
0: Yes. Uh, so Marguerite, who becomes Sister Mary Elizabeth, is one of these fictional Catholic women. And the other one that I choose to end the book with is the Empress Eugénie. Uh, Eugénie, if you read accounts of the, of the Second Empire published in the early Third Republic, it was, it turns out, all her fault. Uh, that the disaster of the Empire was largely because of Eugénie and particularly because of her Catholic devotion that Louis Napoleon would never have sent an army to Rome to support the Pope had it not been for his nagging wife. Uh, and that ultimately the disaster of the Franco-Prussian War is her fault. It's quite reminiscent in many ways of the Marie Antoinette literature of the late 18th century. Um, and so I, for the in this epilogue to the book, alongside the devout Catholic nun who turns her back on the world, I also uh, presented this caricatured Republican version of the nagging Empress Eugénie, who uh, as one account said, you know, her, her Catholicism was as Spanish as she was, meaning that it was superstitious, it was atavistic, it had no place in the modern world.
1: Mm-hmm. And she had been so defaced by the Republican accounts that she lost. I mean, in your view, this is how you present it. I was very struck by the fact that you present Eugenie alongside the character, the fictional character of Marguerite, as epitomes of the Catholic woman at the end of the 19th century. She's become so defaced by Republican accounts that she's lost. Um, Her reality as a historical figure and as a person that she's become a caricature, as you say, or a literary figure more than anything else.
0: Yes, the historical Eugénie is very interesting. Um, she was Catholic. Uh, in fact, uh, I think you could probably make a pretty good case that she she was in many ways a romantic Catholic. Uh, she was devout, but she was also very progressive in many ways, interested in women's education. Um, she she was not trying to recreate some kind of old regime throne altar alliance. The the Catholic Eugénie of the Third Republic is, yeah, every bit as fictional as... as um, is marguerite
1: okay um and then you have the last chapter a free church and a free state the roman question can you tell us how the fall of rome ties in with the ultramontanism that lamunay begins the century proclaiming what happens to the whole question of whether the french church is french and gallican or whether it belongs to the pope beyond the mountains Yes, in the
0: in the eighteen twenties, when Lamet or teens and twenties, when Lamnay begins to insist that French Catholics need to look to Rome, what he is saying is that French Catholics need to give up on the French throne, right? That the French throne will not protect the Catholic Church. Lamnay says the revolution, that was one example, and we shouldn't wait around to see another example. We should that the Catholics should look to Rome and orient their church around the papacy. Um that's why, it's one reason why it is such a blow to Lamne and his followers when the papacy rejects Lamne, mm-hmm. uh, when the papacy turns its back on Manasianism. Um, the Roman question... Uh, is, is, is is a dominant. So, so the Ozanam chapter is about the social question. The, the last chapter is about the Roman question. And the Roman question really dominated a lot of Catholic thought in the 1850s and 60s. What would the fate of papal Rome be? And I found this fascinating because my knowledge of the Roman question before I began on this book was a, was a very sort of it was very much about diplomacy and politics and the unification of Italy and how to draw the map. And it was it was a very sort of high politics and war question. And it was only when I began looking at these Romantic Catholics that I realized the extent to which this was an emotional question, Mm -hmm. uh, that these people felt like their world was falling apart. What kind of future could there be for a world in which the Pope did not rule? Um, That this was catastrophic to people all over Europe. And uh, so it felt like this needed to be addressed in this, in this book on Romantic Catholics um, it is of course a dilemma for people like Montalembert and Craven who are the central figures in the, the chapter on the fall of Rome uh, because on the one hand they are Manasian they do believe that the, in, in this Roman centered church rather than in the Gallican church but on the other hand they've had difficult relationships with Rome all along and they continue to have difficult relationships Montalembert because Uh, well, actually, both Montalembert and Craven become leading crusaders against papal infallibility, against uh, the First Vatican Council in 1869-70. Montalembert in press and Pauline Craven uh, runs one of the most well-known anti-infallibilist salons in Rome. Um, And so at the end of the book, once again, both of them are faced with the question of obedience, right? How do you obey... Uh, how do you bring yourself to obey a church that you believe is profoundly wrong and yet that you have that you that you are dedicated to obey?
1: Mm-hmm. I wonder if I could close with a question about gender again. Uh, sure. Is, do you think this is a thought that popped into my mind as I finished your book. Do you think that the Republicans end up appropriating masculinity? Uh, and the ideal of fraternity that had first moved the Venetians do you think that the condemnation of Lamune slowly leads to the loss of this catholic ideal of fraternity which by the end of the century has been appropriated by the republican camp
0: well i think the romantic catholics tried to borrow the idea of fraternity from from the revolution and they're they're quite conscious of that, right? They're quite conscious of the idea that, or of, of recognizing that fraternity is a revolutionary concept, but they believe that it has Catholic implications and that Catholics can bring something to it. So La Lacordaire famously makes a speech at the Collège Stanislas, where Maurice graduated from, and in fact, where Ozanam taught, announcing that the first liberty tree was planted in the Garden of Eden. So they're very explicit about their conviction that revolutionary ideas are not all anathema that the revolution has a lot to offer Catholics, but that Catholics also have a lot to offer the revolutionary tradition um, yes, that is squeezed out under the third Republic i think and 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 the pressure that Eliminates the space that the, that the Romantic Catholics had occupied comes from both church and state, right? It comes both from the French Third Republic and from the increasingly conservative Church of Pius IX. The question of masculinity is interesting because, of course, that is the Republican argument, Right? That true masculinity is secular, it's republican, it's rights oriented. That's, that's, uh, that is Michelet's argument, for instance, in his book on priests and family and women. Uh, what I find interesting about the Romantic Catholics is that they do not accept that, certainly. Um, and they insist that, that there are other ways of being manly that focus on love and on one's ties to others, one's friends, one's family, and that Catholic men are, uh, that they are gentle and they are strong at the same time because they really can't be anything else. And so I do think um, one of the interesting things about this book is thinking about the ways in which gender and religiosity inflect one another.
1: Mm -hmm. And at the same time, at the end of the day, the idea of brotherhood, the ideal of brotherhood as a communitarian ideal is as a Christian and monastic ideal. Um, and one can say that the revolution secularizes that, and that perhaps the Romantic Catholics are trying to re-spiritualize it um, in a new Romantic way during the 19th century.
0: Yes, I think that's what Lacordaire means when he says, the first liberty tree mm-hmm. in the Garden of Eden. Yes, that
1: exactly.
0: These concepts, he's trying to insist, are, 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 are deeply Christian,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that they shouldn't exclude Christians, and that Christians shouldn't exclude themselves.
1: Yes Well Carol we've taken up a lot of your time um, I wonder if before we go You could tell us a little bit about what you're working on now
0: I would like to um, I'm still working on Pauline Craven uh, Because uh, Finding Craven was For this book was really a revelation um, I I she solved a problem, which is that I was much more familiar with these male Catholics, and i I did not want to write a book without women. and so um, to stumble on Craven in this best selling memoir and also an enormous archive of her papers, uh, it was really a revelation. and so I'd like to work further on Craven. I'm thinking about a biography. She is a completely fascinating woman. Uh, she was French, and yet she lived relatively little of her life in France. She was, as I said, born in England. She was a diplomat's daughter. She spent much of her childhood in Russia, where her father was minister to the court of St. Petersburg. Um, we have all her letters from childhood uh, to various members of her family. So so the letters of Pauline Craven begin when she's about eight. Uh, she, uh, as I said, spent her late 20s in Italy. Uh, where she married an English diplomat, Augustus Craven, uh, who is himself an interesting man. He was uh, the son of a British diplomat, Richard, Sir Richard Keppel Craven, and an unknown mother. That does not happen to many people, that their mothers are unknown. But um, Augustus's mother was never officially uh, acknowledged. Um, Augustus himself had been an actor. He was in the London premiere of Victor Hugo's Hernani. Um, And he was actually Fanny Kimball's first lover before he took up a diplomatic career, met Pauline in Naples, married her, and converted to Catholicism the next day. Uh, The Cravens then in the British diplomatic corps live in London. They live in Brussels. They live in Lisbon. Uh, Pauline comes to know all of the figures of the Oxford movement, for instance. She's a fairly regular correspondent of Cardinal Newman's, um, of the British elite, both Protestant and Catholic, uh, and then, by the end of uh, by by late middle age, she is primarily living in Italy. She is supporting the family as an author. Uh, Augustus' diplomatic career never goes very far, uh, so she's a best-selling author, and that's what they're living on. And then, of course, she becomes uh, this anti-infallibilist salonière. Um, she is also an Italian nationalist. She is one of the v- relatively few. Super devout Catholics who also believes in an Italian nation state. Um, and then the other interesting piece of her story that I'm working on actually right now is, uh, she is the daughter of a putative saint. Her father died in Rome in 1842. Uh, her father's body lay in the church of Sant Andrea delle Frate in Rome. And it was in front of the body of the Count de la Ferronnay that Alphonse Ratispon, the French Jew, saw a vision of the Virgin Mary and converted to Catholicism. Um, so the piece of the story that I'm interested in right now is exactly what it's like to have your father... Um, Promoted as a saint, there was there was a bit of a campaign for the count's sainthood, um, particularly when you know he wasn't really a saint. Pauline was pretty well acquainted with her illegitimate half brother, for instance. Um, so I think her story is fascinating. I think it tells us a lot about the relationships between women and religion in the age of the nation state. And I am really fascinated about this by this relationship between women and the emerging nation states that. Needed women, but we're not allowed, we're not prepared to allow them full citizenship.
1: Okay, well, all the best with that project. Um, Thank you, and I wanted to thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, and to hope that you'll come again someday when you finish your perhaps biography of Colleen Craven.
0: I certainly hope so. It's a great pleasure to talk about the work. Thank you.